Yeah. It makes me wonder, like, how big the library of Alexandria was. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. I, I mean, it probably was just, like, two rooms, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's easy to, it's easy to, like, kind of, like, glorify these, you know, eras of the past, like, the Renaissance, and be like, how could all of these geniuses be in the same place at the same time? And, like, the, the reality is that it's just like, no, those were just, like, the, the assholes that were in the right place at the right time. Not right. that all of these geniuses were in the same place at the same time. It's just like you're just magnifying a single sliver of humanity mm-hmm. that ended up getting a, bl- a like a glow up yeah, in yeah. human history. You know, they it's just like, hit some critical mass of it. Yeah, yeah. Because I mean, of tribulations. It's like who's to say that that I don't know, like. Raphael, or you know like some random renaissance painter that wasn't like mm-hmm. like top flight you know he's like the the rob schneider of the renaissance crew you know where it's like mm-hmm. that guy's not actually talented but he's still a part of the crew and therefore yeah. gets all you know to reap all the benefits <laughs> that's the dream that is the dream honestly Let's fall in with a good crew it's like be that guy from um the bloomsbury group uh yeah. the the prankster it's like, this guy didn't do shit, but he was like didn't do shit. key member of the Bloomsbury group. Yeah. Uh, some mild ass takes today, dude. Yeah, these are not spicy. Welcome to the Hegelian Friendship Simulator, the only podcast on the internet where we try and uncover the truth of the universe, one Wikipedia article at a time. Hmm. I am joined today and every day with my wonderful co-host, Alex Virgil. Hey, thanks, John. Oh, I already said it, but I, of course, as always, am joined by my fantastic co-host, John Miklas. Thank you, sir. Great job on the intro. Great, yeah. that was smooth as fuck. Yeah, thank you. And we'll we'll edit it in post, so you know, <laughs> you'll, you that compliment will be in there either way, and you'll yep. never know the difference. Um, well, uh, you know, you, listener, dear listener, you heard it already. This is the Hegelian Friendship Simulator. Thank you for joining in. If it's your mm-hmm. first time here, um, you picked a great episode. I yeah, we nice haven't even recorded it yet, but it's feeling good. <laughs> High energy. Guaranteed. We're, Guaranteed. we're in for a treat. And if you're returning, welcome back. Um, yeah. Come on, sit down and enjoy the show, little piggy. Enjoy this yeah. slop that we feed you. Slow news week, you know? Mm-hmm. Light. I think the bi- the big news to come out of coronavirus is that the vaccines are picking up pace. We're doing good, yeah. People seem to be doing all right. You know, it's the first time the idea of openings doesn't feel as crazy. Yeah. Um, I would say... There are some, yeah, preliminary movements in the government that might have some rippling effects, but right now things seem to be fairly quiet. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Fuck the government. All my homies hate yeah. the government, you know? Boom. Um, yeah, but the coronavirus, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm feeling my first shade of optimism 
mm-hmm. in a while. I uh, cautious optimism for sure. I was yeah sitting outside with beer, um, in my home, uh, and I was thinking about being in public, and I was like, this summer is gonna rock. And I mm-hmm. truly actually think that. Like, I think that we are, like, it's the first, like, light at the end of the tunnel where I'm like, I'm going to look forward to that season of the year. Mm-hmm. And um, we'll see if that, you know, if that comes back to haunt me. You know, re- yeah. remember this, remember this episode when, um, yeah. 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 We might be looking back and going, dang, we dang. were, we were right. Or like we've said before, we might be huddled around that trash can fire. Eventually, maybe. Oh, yes. Little did little did we know. Um, but I don't have any old business, man. Do yeah, I don't either. Business? I don't either. Um, I I had a a, a friend, uh, a listener mm. of the show, um, a coworker, the only coworker who I'm comfortable listening to the show. Um, nice. Reached out and and I, I the only old business I. I will uh, share his thought. He mm. said he had always um, intrinsically connected the German, the Japanese with the Germans, like right. Japanese culture with German culture. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until our discussion last week mm-hmm. and the um, the emergence of Fart Man that he <laughs> finally made the connection of the French and the Japanese. Uh, mm. So I thought that was interesting. I think that that, that is interesting. That really is kind of an aha moment for a lot of people mm-hmm. when you start to think about cultures that would would be able to, um, you know, put Fart Man on a pedestal. Right. It, I don't. I don't think the Germans would appreciate Fart Man the way that the French and clearly the Japanese would. The way, and this might be culturally insensitive, and I frankly don't care. Um, the way the Germans would enjoy Fart Man would be a way that the rest of the world can't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Fart they Man, might enjoy. They very well might enjoy Fart Man. Fart Man has a very different connotation in German culture. Yeah, yeah, he does. Yeah, um, it's not pretty. Well, to some, I guess, if you're into that. Yeah, kind of exactly. Thing. If you're into that sort of thing, and no judgment. But you mm. know. I can't help but judge a little bit. Just, <laughs> you know, it's like it's just like the Puritan American in me. It's just like I'm judging yeah. you a little bit if you're into that kind that of is. thing. But just don't tell me about it. You can enjoy it, and I just don't need to know. It's cool. Yeah, see, that's where your coworker is right. Because it's like as a Japanese person, any German thing I see, I go, "Yeah, man, I get it." <laughs> it's not for me, but I get why you might. <laughs> I don't know, yeah. man. It's it's. Weird. I don't know. We don't need to. I we need to maybe I, walk I, away from I, this. Subject. I can I can pivot pivot away a little bit more. There was <laughs> there was some synthesizing happening in my head about, um, just like the marriage between the physiological aspect of sex and when that when that crosses over into kind of the spiritual metaphysical kind of like transcendental experience of it. Mm-hmm. And the and any and I was curious about any culture's familiarity on a large scale with that concept, right? Mm-hmm. Like our our and, and and this is that classic like internet age U.S. thing where it's like both are spoken heavily about, but do we as a as the larger culture really do we experience that spiritual the 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 sex that is 
kind of like that should be put on a pedestal. I think we all know that it exists, but no one really yeah we str- we we, we uh, strive for it as much. I don't know. Or or we um we we certainly don't um we internalize it. We don't we don't mm-hmm. it's not a pub like that. It's not really like a socially acceptable. Right. I feel like I feel like sex is in the United States is so and I don't know, maybe this is not maybe this is I think America is more repressed sexually than almost any other part of the developed world. And mm-hmm. so we, it doesn't mean that we aren't as equally sex crazed as the rest of the world. Right. It just means that we swallow those feelings and internalize them and they right. end up being a much uglier that's how you get true crime real. podcasts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's why I mean, so many true crime podcasts. Yeah. There, there's like, I mean, I that's know. why like SVU, that's why like all these, all the yeah. shows that are popular. Why is popular, SVU so popular? It's the reason like, why <laughs> these shows are popular, the mid to late 20th century fucking shows are popular is because women are the largest demographic watching TV. And those stories resonate with fucking mostly white American women. Mm-hmm. Because they are constantly under threat of the person that they're living with being like an absolute monster. Yeah, is it like cathartic? You think? It just seems I, like. Yeah, it, I'm curious. I, well, I guess. I mean, I guess there's a reason why people like horror movies. Man, we are we are finding a path here. This is yeah, good. Yeah, no, it's good. It's good. I I do find it interesting. I mean, I'm I I'm I'm. I've personally experienced this with the women right. in my life who are obsessed right. with this kind of stuff. Yeah. And I don't know, maybe I just need to ask them. Maybe this is just a sign that I need to talk to I the think, women in my life. I think that's what it is. I think the 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 few women, handful of women that might listen to this podcast are going to be like, one, you guys are just bad at sex, it sounds like. <laughs> two, <laughs> there's a very specific reason women in this country like svu and it's because of the experiences that we don't share with you you know mm-hmm. i see that so there you go so boom you know I think, boom yeah there's a lot to be said about sex and farts <laughs> and um, farts. sex and farts we we could probably have like three or four follow-up episodes follow-up episodes that is just yeah. called sex and farts yeah maybe that's a, a series maybe it's our spinoff our first spinoff podcast is just sex and farts welcome back sex, to sex and, and farts, farts. Yeah. yeah um virg do you know what time it is oh i don't for sure but i think i can guess is it <laughs> ethnic enclave of the week <laughs> well virg we're gonna take a trip to london town oh to london town Alrighty. Yes, please. Um, to a particular neighborhood, um, in the east, I think, of London. Eastern uh, London. Eastern London. You sound like you're from London. Uh, no, West London. West London. Um, called Ealing. E A L, E A L I N G. Um, ten bucks says it's pronounced Ailing. Ailing. Aileen, or Eileen, might be Eileen. Or Eileen, Elaine. Mm-hmm. So it's um a 
It's a uh, a borough and okay. district of London um, in the historic county of Middlesex. And until oh, the sense. urban expansion of London in the late 19th century, Ealing was a rural village. Um, but due to development, um, it is now part of Greater London. Mm. Um, and it is sometimes known as the Queen of the Suburbs um, oh. due to its greenery and because it was halfway between the city and country. Um, okay. But today, mm-hmm. Ealing... Eileen, or Aileen, uh, mm. is known as the Polish-speaking center of the UK. Oh. Yeah. So, right. Virg, are you familiar with the, the Polish diaspora in the UK? Not specifically in the UK, but I have some guesses as to <laughs> why... Yeah, where we're going uh, with this? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, okay. So yes, the poles. Um, yes. Have a actually a pretty long history. Um, you know, mm. over a century, uh, longer honestly. Um, of mm-hmm. of immigration to the UK, and mm-hmm. uh, believe it or not, the Polish language is actually the second most spoken language in England, and the third oh. most spoken language in the UK after English and Welsh. I uh, did not know that at all. I never would have guessed. So, um, Poles have had um, a pretty uh, rough go of it for the past, yeah. um, I mean, we'll just say 150 years, but it's probably yeah, longer. Yeah, that's good. Um, and they, uh, so they've had a series of, yeah, just pretty unfortunate events in their mm-hmm. motherland. Um, that's led um, Poles to uh, have to, um, you know, like evacuate or, or leave their home country um, many times. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and then in addition to that, um, a huge Jewish population in Poland uh, mm-hmm. who also had to escape if they could um, Poland. Yeah. And many, many, many Poles ended up in the UK, um, which has really just kind of continued to ex- exacerbate. Uh, in, um, in 1947, um, many Poles that had left during the Second World War because of the German invasion um, mm-hmm. found their homeland um, newly a communist country. Mm. And couldn't, uh, you know, found that their homeland was a hostile foreign state, uh, yeah. facing tons of repression by the Soviets. Uh, and so the the British passed the Polish Resettlement Act of 1947. It's actually Britain's first mass immigration law. Um, mm. And then, in addition, um, they by 1951, 162,000 uh, residents had listed, listed Poland as their birthplace in the UK. Up from forty four thousand in nineteen thirty one, um, and today there is roughly seven hundred thousand British citizens of Polish descent. Um, but so this story actually gets more complicated. The Poles in Britain, mm-hmm. because they were um, obviously the second most spoken language in in England, the mo- probably the most prominent immigrant group in England that led to many English people in the early 21st century 
to decry mm-hmm. the dangers of immigration mm-hmm. and of losing the you know proper Englishness of their right. country and right. Polish <laughs> communities were a big exacerbating factor in mm-hmm. the growing resentment of the EU and mm-hmm. the free travel of peoples who were members of the EU and mm-hmm. a precursor to Brexit. So yeah. I am bringing all this up as the ethnic enclave of the week because I found an absolutely batshit insane British tabloid article about huh. one of the most pernicious, but also absolutely fucking hilarious British stereotypes or fears of the Polish people. You oh, ready for God. It? I can't so, wait. So this is from one of the truly most evil um, magazines in the Western world, the Daily Mail, which is like yeah, even, even grosser than the New York Post. Like one of the most gross disgusting just absolutely abject lying piece of shit newspapers um that exists in in the west so uh this is from march 26 2010 and by a fucking asshole named andrew malone and it says (laughs) the title is slaughter of the swans as carcasses pile up and migrant camps are built on riverbanks Peterborough residents are too frightened to visit the park. <sighs> you ready for this? Yeah. <laughs> it, it makes you, yeah. it, it makes you feel dirty. Uh, but so uh, the article is, starts by talking about this like brand new civic project, um, you know, revitalizing the greenway with 50 miles of cycle routes and, um, uh, picnic spots and whatever whatever in the town of peterborough which is a a london suburb uh and then it says but this week with spring in the air and flowers in bloom on the banks few local people were brave enough to venture for an evening stroll along this delightful waterway following disturbing allegations that eastern european immigrants are plundering and pillaging local wildlife for according to according to a flurry of alarming reports, Eastern Europeans are stalking the creatures of the River Nain, and to the horror of local residents, are reputedly now targeting the city's swans. Rather than simply enjoying the spectacle of these majestic birds, it was claimed that immigrants see the swans as a rich source of food, and are trapping the birds then roasting them on open fires along the riverbank. The Peterborough Evening Telegraph, which this week revealed details of the scandal, has been inundated with letters and emails since claiming that legally protected swans were being butchered by immigrants who are raping Peterborough's waterways by snaring the birds, then battering them to death with iron bars. There are... Um, only a very small number of times I want to just straight up hit someone in the face. This is like and you want really to hit this nails, person in the face, yeah. nails exactly it, the personality type that. Did. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, it is. I think it is a and and listen, listen, listener. <laughs> there are a myriad of mm-hmm. like 
just absolutely deplorable things about the United States government and its people. And you can add pretty much every country in the world, like with like the shitty things, but um, at the risk of not being on brand, we are going to talk about some of the shittiest things that British people do. (laughs) And um, one of my favorite, least favorite things that British people do is being Mm. like mortally upset with the most benign, stupid mm-hmm. bullshit on earth. And mm-hmm. this is the exact kind of like incredulous anger that British people like are just a laughing stock for. Like, oh no, the swans? Not the swans. It's like my reaction to this is good. Like, good. Eat the, uh, yeah. eat the fucking swans. Like, they're shitty, yeah. terrible animals to begin with. And also, who cares? The the queen's swans? Go fuck yourself. Like, honestly, go fuck yourself. And and here's my thing is, like, no one that's living there is otherwise looking at the swans, all things equal, going, ah, swans. They're probably going, these swans fucking shit everywhere. Yeah. Fuck these swans. They're loud. Like, they're fucking whatever. It's, I mean, it's like nothing makes me happier than seeing um, like a British person or an English person who's like up their own asshole be upset about something. It's yeah, like, harumphing. Um, yeah, it's like I don't care what wrong it is. Like as long as you're upset about the, the dignity of the situation, mm-hmm. I'm all for it. I'm sorry. Doesn't <laughs> Doesn't matter. Yeah, so I don't need to read any more of this article. It sucks. Um, the Daily Mail sucks. Yeah, don't, don't amplify there. Yeah, the Daily Mail sucks. Um, Eastern European immigrants are good, actually. Yeah. And um, polls are great. Polls are cool. You know, I've heard they do a great job screwing in light bulbs. You know. <laughs> yep. Uh, and that's yeah, that's the ethnic enclave of the week. Boom. Cool. Thanks. Boom. Good. Yeah. It's that's a cool piece of information for sure. Is to find out that. Polish is the second most uh, popularly spoken language in England. Yeah, I, that's uh, that's the ethnic enclave. Virch, what you, I think you're yeah, going right. first, right? I think you're I am first. going first. Hell yeah! So um, this is one of those kind of meandering ones. Yeah, I like that. A re- true hole. Um, so we're not going to stick to any one thing in particular. And as I am, as I've kind of alluded to previously today. I'm kind of in between thoughts, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. No real, like, train of thought going on. Um, But I did see this hilarious tweet that led me down. Okay, so the tweet that started it Mm -hmm. was by Ron, at Ron Nui. Do dogs understand elevators? Or are they just like, okay, it's time to get into the world changer? (laughs) I was like, that's a fun tweet. Yeah. So then I went back to our old faithful unusual articles page, yeah, down to the animals page because you know I've I've been in that area before. Yeah, it's a good it's a good part of the page for sure. Heard of them chickens? So then I clicked on exploding toads. Mm -hmm. Exploding toads, and apparently in April two thousand five, toads in the Altana district of Hamburg were observed by nature protection officials to swell up with gases 
and explode, propelling their innards for distances of up to one meter. And 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 die die explode death I mean, explode. Yeah, they yeah. just fully explode. Like their innards are flying around. Like a Pokemon. Like a like a like a Pokemon doing self destruct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I was like, do Pokemon explode? Um, these incidents prompted local residents to refer to the area's lake, home to the toads, as Tumpel des to- Todes, mm-hmm. which is hilarious because the word Todes doesn't even mean toad. It means death. So it oh. means pool of death. Is it, do you think that, is, it, is that a pun? Is that a German pun? No, because I just did Google Translate, and I typed it in just to see, and it just said pool of death. But I think it's got. They've got to have like called it that because of the English word for toad. Like, there's got to like I, Germans speak English enough to know that there's like a double entendre, right? Yeah, maybe, maybe I don't know. It doesn't say anywhere. I looked for that. It didn't. Fair say enough. Anywhere. Fair enough. I think it's a pun. Yeah. I think we're going with our our very first okay. um, organically produced pun in our Hell Wikipedia yeah. podcast. Your your wife would love. This. She won't listen, but she would love it. Yeah. Make sure to tell her. <laughs> yeah, I'll tell her. Because otherwise she'll never find out. <laughs> she would never know, yeah. Um, uh, so this is interesting. Berlin veterinarian Franz Much, Muchman, Muchman <laughs> collected toad corpses. Uh, n- another pun, another ne- pun. <laughs> yeah. Performed necropsies. He theorized that the phenomenon, this is weird. He theorized that the phenomenon was linked to a recent influx of predatory crows to the area. Hmm. He stated that the cause was a mixture of crow attacks and the natural puff-up defense of the toads. The crows attacked the toads to pick through the skin between the amphibian's chest and abdominal cavity, picking out the liver, which appears to be a delicacy for crows in the area. (laughs) Hell yeah. Fair enough. In a defensive move, the toads begin to blow themselves up which in turn, due to the hole in the toad's body and the missing liver, led to a rupture of blood vessels and lungs and to the spreading of intestines. Gross. Yeah, but kind of cool. That's crazy. Because the crows are like the taste of toad liver. Is this this hypothesis fairly well established as like what people think is the case? None of this is fairly well established. Oh, this is a a true phenomenon. Yeah. Okay. Other theories include viral or fungal infection, possibly one also affecting foreign horses living in a racing, uh, involved in racing at a nearby track. However, laboratory tests were unable to detect an infectious agent. So weird. So then, of course, I was clicking. um, So then I clicked like animal sentience because I was just kind of curious, of course. Yeah. Which led me to military animals. (laughs) Mm hmm. Jesus. Because, and I thought, you know, there was the part of me that was like, maybe this could spur some conversation about the role of animals in warfare historically and like morally. But that sounds super heavy. But then our, but then it, it, it got me kind of to our last stop, which is where most of the reading happens. And this is just, I forgot I was going first, but this is like one of those classic, like, hilarious pages where the talk page is just as funny yes i love the talk page this is the story of sergeant stubby (laughs) (laughs) 
I'm glad. I'm glad. I didn't think we would go through all the other stuff as quickly as we did. I'm kind of glad we did. Um, Sergeant Stubby was a dog and the official mascot of the 102nd Infantry Regiment in the U.S. and was assigned to the 26th Division in World War One. He served for 18 months and participated in 17 battles on the Western Front. He saved his regiment from surprise mustard gas attacks, found and comforted the wounded, and allegedly once caught a German soldier by the seat of his pants, holding him there until American soldiers found him. What kind of dog was he? He's just like a tiny little terrier, a Boston terrier. He's like a little, he's like a little what? rat dog. He's a little rat dog. <laughs> he's a tiny little rat dog who saved American lives. Stubby has been called the most decorated war dog of World War One, and the only dog to be nominated for rank and then promoted to sergeant through combat. Um... <laughs> Which, Wait, this he was oh my god he's a decorated war hero um okay let's see stubby, oh my god i just looked stubby him up was... he is the most ridiculous looking dog of all time i'm sorry i to interrupt but this dog is no. like a true rat dog he's a yeah a total rat dog and but and, but then simultaneously like so such a classic mask american military mascot of the time like running mm-hmm. around with the boys in 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 the shit with the boys kind of like little rat dog um stubby was found wandering the grounds of the yale university campus in new haven connecticut in 1917 while members of the 102nd infantry were training he hung around them as the men drilled, and one soldier in particular, Corporal James Robert Conroy, developed a fondness for him. When it came time for the outfit to ship out, Conroy hid Stubby on board the troop ship. As they were getting off the ship in France, he hid Stubby under his overcoat without detection. Upon oh discovery God. by Conroy's commanding officer, Stubby saluted him as he had been trained to in camp, and the commanding officer allowed the dog to stay on board. Oh my! See, this is this is not real. Like, this is the thing. It, I love the, the idea of this because this is just like a straight up like nineteen fifties American like movie. You know what I mean? Like, this yeah. is just a this is just a feel good movie. Yeah, Nothing, with a little bit of elements of like like oh war is hell. Like one tragic scene, you know, and then mm-hmm. the rest is just like good feel good fun maybe a couple like silly scenes and then one like heroic scene you know this is the classic situation of like he was probably on the by bonds by bonds posters you know yeah just the classic um but here's the thing man he deserved his medals (laughs) yeah seriously stubby there's 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 like stubby served in the trenches in france for 18 months participated in four offensives and 17 battles he entered combat on february 18th at uh some place and was under constant fire day and night for over a month 
During a raid in April 1918, he was wounded in the foreleg by repeating, retreating Germans throwing hand grenades. Oh my god. He was sent to the rear for convalescence and, as he had done on the front, improved morale. When he recovered from his wounds, Stubby returned to the trenches. Oh my god. He, in his first year of battle, Stubby was injured by mustard gas. After he recovered, he returned with a specially designed gas mask to protect him. Awesome. Like, um, how can you not yeah. love this? I, I this is there's nothing not to love about this story. This is a so this is a full Forrest Gump. Like I feel like Forrest Gump yeah, almost absolutely. was like lifted directly off. Of. After returning returning home, he became a celebrity and marched in and normally led many parades across the country. He met presidents Woodrow Wilson, Calvin Coolidge, and Warren Harding. Uh, um, he oh this this is the best part this is the the sentence that made me go to the talk page Um, during that same year he attended Georgetown University Law Center along with Conroy and became the Georgetown team mascot he'd be given the football at halftime and would nudge the ball around the field to the amusement of fans while still a student at Georgetown, Conroy oh Conroy was also employed as employed as a special agent of the FBI or the precursor to the FBI. Interesting. So uh, I I'm on the page and I'm looking at all the photos, which are all incredible. My favorite yeah, one by far, uh, I think, is the after the war section photo. The General John Pershing yeah. Awards Sergeant Stubby. Because and I and I you need to click on it because oh god it's a the not only is it great because it's a blurry photo of this happy yeah. little dog yeah, being the dog's face is blurry awarded a medal from General John Pershing who yeah. um, if you are not familiar has a square named after him in downtown Los Angeles and a very important street named after him in San Diego it, it very I mean John Pershing is a very big deal um, but the best part of this photo is Sergeant Stubby's owner, quote-unquote, uh, Robert Conway. terrifying stand, Yeah, oh. uh, standing behind him with the biggest shit-eating grin of all time. <laughs> like like this like fake, like, I can't believe my life led me to this moment, uh, but yeah. I am going to milk it for all it's worth. Because <laughs> something, I've, something I've already forgotten, already forgotten, is the fact that he also served in yeah. World War One for at least the amount of time that Stubby did. Yeah. Sergeant Stubby, I'm sorry. Um, at least the amount of time. And he, he knows at this point that he's like, this is the best thing I've done. This is, this is the best thing. <laughs> I have just, um, yeah, saved that photo and saved Robert Conroy from it. <laughs> Uh, and he will be in the thumbnail photo. That is for sure. Uh, oh, and then of course the the icing on the cake is um, the animated film. Yeah, there was an animated film that came out in 2018, which curiously stars Logan Lerman, which makes sense, Helena Bonham Carter, and Gerard Depardieu. <laughs> that rocks. That rocks so hard. In, oh in this God. like weird animated movie put out by okay fun no. academy media group yeah we need to figure out all right i'm looking it up on letterbox or who who's 
the EP Wait. of this? Like, where did this come from? I don't know. I can't. None of the names in the uh, crew and cast have their own Wikipedia page except the stars and okay. music by Patrick Doyle. The um, the director has no zero other credits on Letterboxd. Mm. This is the only thing he's ever directed. Mm. Um, John Bernard is a producer, get this, on two films <laughs> only. Sergeant Stubby okay. is one, the other is Munich, the Steven Spielberg what? movie. <laughs> oh, maybe this is, a, this is that's a guy who only who who works to have enough money to play. Yeah, His whole life like he's just like, dude, I did Munich. I don't need to do anything for twenty years or fifteen <laughs> years. Huh. Sergeant Stubby himself does not speak as the filmmakers wanted to main as maintain as much historical accuracy as possible. Oh, well, you have to, yeah. Portrayal for children. That's so funny. I also love um, that the the tagline is the incredible true story of America's top underdog, which <laughs> reminds me of one of both of our favorite plays, Top Dog Underdog, which is top completely unrelated. Underdog. But, but I, I do find that like a hilarious like top underdog is a very like awkward yeah awkward way to put it <laughs> the photo of the release wait look at the photo uh, the sergeant stubby world premiere it's logan lerman and dean collins oh my dean god. collins is just like another young actor <laughs> oh my god is he in this movie he's not even in this movie awesome i love it i love it Everything about Sergeant Stubby is fucking great. I mean, then the, there's... Um, I, I did just accidentally click on the talk page. Can we move on to talking about the talk page? Because it is oh my God. wild. Yes. Hilarious talk page. Um, I'll let you lead if you have any favorites, but I am it's, at a loss. It's, it's, more, it's, it's so like much. more the... It's kind of like... It's the tone. It's the humor of the tone where it's like... There's people who are worried. They're they're not so much worried as much as like they're discussing the morality of include you know this this dog being involved in warfare, and then you get people who are like only worried about the historical accuracy of this story. You know. Yeah, this is a favorite exchange so far. This woman, or I'm sorry, I don't know why I just said woman. This anonymous user said those poor pit bulls stubby looks so cute this is a very adorable article any dog could be sweet or vicious depending on how they are raised so i guess i oppose a breed specific ban too doesn't make sense it would uh, seem to only have pr benefits astrophil april 25th yeah uh, there's a then, lot of pit bull conversation too and then but then this person a completely anonymous user with a number username on august 3rd 2012 Responding to the April 25th, 2006 posting said, Wikipedia talk pages are not the place to talk about that. Go to a forum. It's like, you've responded to someone six years later. (laughs) I love, I love the, 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 the Wikipedia, like, autism society like mm-hmm. of, it just it, it rocks like that hyper literal like do not talk about this here this is a serious page for an encyclopedia yeah. article <laughs> yeah about this 
It's about, I'm about Sergeant, Sergeant Stubby. Stubby. <laughs> oh. oh, Sergeant Stubby's hearing. Here's a great one. It's like the classic Wikipedia pedantic. Uh, since artillery shells arrive moving faster than the speed of sound, as illustrated in the movie All All's Quiet on the Western Front, that's his source, his or I'm sure it's a he, yeah. neither the sergeant nor any other being could have heard them coming. That part at least is certainly a myth. It is possible, but unlikely, that the sergeant could have seen them coming. He's referring to the dog. <laughs> and that tends to happen most often when the shell is headed your way. Uh, this is another like really pedantic one. Interesting article. First, you got to put it out there. Interesting article. I do have a problem, however, with the sentence, Stubby attended Georgetown. <laughs> Isn't it better to say, while John Robert Conroy attended Georgetown, Stubby was named mascot? It's like, yeah, you fucking asshole. Probably. But come on. You're on yeah. the Sergeant Stubby Wikipedia page. Like, yeah. Oh Sergeant, like... He he is saying that a dog is not a dog can cannot have the word attended ascribed to him. And then it's also like Jay Van Meter, guess what though? Sergeant Stubby saved more lives in war than you did. Yeah. Okay, well, but this... probably. I don't wanna suggest that Jay Van Meter may not have been a hero for this country. But I I also love this exchange. Um this person said, um, do you actually think a dog was promoted to sergeant? And then someone responded and said, I find this article's assertions to be dubious at best. Hell I, yes. Hell I don't yes. disagree. We love our pedantic kings, our pedantic yep. Wikipedia editing kings. You guys yep. never change. Please, please never change. That's the thing. That's the thing, too, is like, I disagree with the. T like, I would say no you know what let him have it let sergeant stubby have it but also thank you for your diligence yeah keep honestly up. i mean keep, we want the keep best us honest we we do want this is a non-profit community edited encyclopedia like that theoretically you want to exist if like human existence went extinct for some reason and like yeah. aliens showed up one day and like we're like logged onto a computer like wikipedia has to stay it, it's 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 bigger than sergeant stubby as much as he is just the cutest little thing that ever existed i'm making a judgment call to those pedantics is this one gets to stay as yeah as honestly you can have anything nature. else you can have any of the other problematic talk pages sergeant stubby he stays okay he earned his medals he did he he did earn his medals no matter what gerard Depardieu might say oh my god this is wow and this is a pretty you found this article organically right like this wasn't on yes. like a random list this is a really <laughs> incredible article i'm impressed yeah, just so it, it you know it gets you a little riled up in that it gets you in the fervor of like heroism <laughs> yeah hell yeah so there you have it great pretty good good you stuff. know quick and easy an easy one this week is but a lot of fun twists and turns um yeah. all right i am going to start 
my um, my topic um, oh. by reading a kind of like prepared like story, if you okay. will, uh, yeah, and then we'll, cool. we'll go from there. All right. Sounds great. So, uh, it's a cold, misty night on the 28th of February, 1986, in Stockholm, Sweden. Sweden. Mm. And Prime Minister Olaf Palm is walking home from the cinema with his wife, Lisbeth. Prime Minister... Almost exactly 25 years ago. Yeah, yeah. 25 years ago tomorrow. Um, Prime Minister Palm has a reputation as wanting to live an ordinary life, free from pomp and circumstances of other politicians. And that includes the decision to largely reject the need for a security detail. Um, uh, the Prime Minister uh-huh. and his wife had gone to see the Mozart Brothers, a new Swedish comedy film, and he met his son and daughter-in-law at the theater. Though the film was almost a sellout, Palm bought tickets at the theater, uh, and the ticket clerk, recognizing the Prime Minister, sold him the best seats in the house, the theater director's seats. Uh, the two couples talked outside the theater for a good amount of time, and finally split up at 11.15 p.m. as Olaf and Lisbeth walked along the Svevagen, one of Sweden's, uh, one of Stockholm's busiest streets. They stopped for a moment to look at something in a shop window at the corner of Svevagen and Tunnelgatan, and at 11.21, a man appeared from behind and shot Mr. Palm at point-blank range. The man fired a second shot at Mrs. Palm and jogged down Tunnelgatan Street and up the steps of Malmskilsangatsen, never to be seen again. Um, Mr. Palm was declared dead as he arrived at the hospital at 12.04 p.m., or 12.04 a.m. So, um, today we're going to talk about the life and assassination of Olaf Palm. Mm. Uh, So, the story of Olaf Palm... I've come to find out is something that lives pretty looms pretty large in Interesting. in the world in like Swedish history. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think now that we have the fact that he was assassinated almost 25 years ago, um, almost exactly 25 years ago, mm-hmm. I kind of want to backtrack and talk about him as a person uh, because what I've found is that he was a pretty like remarkable man. Uh, okay, cool. So Olaf Palm was the prime minister of Sweden uh, twice, mm-hmm. actually. Um, okay. First was um, from, let's see. Uh, so in 1969, he became prime minister until 1976, uh, and then again from 1982 until his death in 1986. Um, he was a member of the uh, Social Democratic Party of Sweden, mm-hmm. and he was the protege of Prime Minister Taj Erlander, um, okay. who had been the prime minister um, for 23 years up until he resigned in order for Palm to become prime minister in 1969. And so the 40 years that um, the social Democrats were uh, the, the governing party of Sweden is like one of the longest, if not the very longest time a political party has ever been 
the majority party in a in a truly democratic country in the history of modern politics um and so like i think in the u.s we hear a lot about like i don't know conservative people being like oh you say you want sweden or socialism like you might as well move to venezuela and then Mm -hmm. the kind of left liberal response is like well no we don't want socialism like venezuela we want socialism like sweden Right. Mm -hmm. And first of all, if you're listening to this, stop doing that. First of all. Okay. Because, because you like, I think that it is important to have solidarity with all peoples of the world and Mm -hmm. to understand that like the sheer amount of sanctions and like, and, um, kind of weight being pressed down on the socialist and leftist governments of the global south versus talking about like the most one of the most developed parts of the world in the nordic countries like like fuck you if you are bringing up venezuela as a crutch against people who are looking to like lift up the poor and working people of the world like fuck you Mm -hmm. and so and so 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 stop throwing like stop throwing the people of Venezuela under the bus for what is just like a monument monumental amount of weight being held down on their country. Right. And and no doubt like tons of corruption but like like stop talking about like like backtracking against that so that you can talk about the Nordic model. Right. That being said, we are going to talk about the Nordic model right now because it is like a sh- a shining cool. beacon of light on the world. Um mm-hmm. this like Swedish so are like nordic socialist dream mm-hmm. and this guy olaf palm is at like the very core of like what that means um mm-hmm. he is like often been uh bernie sanders has often said that he is like one of his you know greatest heroes um and he's just a badass like he's just so cool Hell yeah um so i wanted to read um in, in the 1980s, he was on a television show. And um, mm-hmm. mind you, I told you, 1976, he, um, uh, the, the Social Democrats lost power for like the first time in mm-hmm. 40 years. Um, and then he got reelected in 1982. Um, he was on a, a Swedish television show, and he was having like a debate with the mm-hmm. um, the leader of the the center party which i think was like a center right party and or is a center right yeah, party in sweden i think i think they tend to be that way yeah right? um so this is olaf palm being asked why he is a democratic socialist cool uh he says uh, and i would play a clip but it is in swedish so i have to read the transcript um let me first make a principal point here. Mr. Falden, uh, leader of the Center Party, has been nagging me about telling him why I am a socialist. I am a democratic socialist, proudly and happily so. I became one when I traveled to India and saw the horrible poverty among the people while a few were tremendously rich, while still a few were uh, uh, even more tremendously rich. When I traveled in, and further and saw in some ways even more degrading poverty in the United States. 
When I, as a very young man, stood eye to eye with the oppression of communism and saw the perse persecution of people in the communist states. When I arrived at the Nazi concentration camps and got to see the death mm -hmm. lists accounting for social democrats and union members. When I understood that it was social democracy that paved the way for democracy in Sweden. When I realized that it was social democracy that had lifted us up from poverty and unemployment with the crisis policies of the 30s. When I myself got to participate and promote pension reform and met the privileged with their smear campaigns, when employees just wanted to secure their years of old age. I became a, so a democratic socialist uh, after many years of working with Taj Erlander, where I learned what democracy and humanism truly are. And with close friends uh, like Willie Brandt, Bruno Kreisky, and Trigvi Bratelli, who risked their lives in the fight for human value and dignity. But more importantly is that the strength of my convictions are bolstered when I look out over the world, when I see the wars and the arms races, unemployment and rifts between people. My convictions are strengthened when I, in our own country, see the injustices grow, unemployment grow, and speculation grow, and crooked dealings become widespread. When I see how right-wing politics in country after country put people in unemployment, destroy their social security, but still manage to not solve the economic problems of the nations. And when I look into the future that the right-wingers seem to offer, where employees are to be poorer and the rich richer, where social security is fragmented and the luxury yachts many, where solidarity is weakened and selfishness grows stronger, where the strong can assert themselves while the weak can do nothing. Yes, I am a democratic socialist, proudly so. Considering what this democratic socialism has made possible in our country, I am one gladly because I know that there are important tasks at hand after the right-wing years of poor governments. Um, now people know what happens with jobs and stability when right-wing powers are in charge. And I am one in a way with an amused smile because I know that modern Swedish history is full of valuable social democratic reforms that you have dep depicted as evil socialism, but then later fight to take credit for when people have seen the benefits and value of them. I am certainly a socialist, um, like Brantine when he passed the right to vote, like Per Alban when he fought unemployment, like Erlander when he built the social security and pension system, because this is about solidarity and thoughtfulness towards each other. What exactly are you, Mr. Falden? Boom. Boom. I love oh. that. I love it because it's just like, it, it is like a type of politics that gets attacked from all sides where it's mm -hmm. like, you know, a democratic socialism, um, like someone who is a f like far left would say, it's just naive, you know, mm -hmm. like actually everyone would kind of say it's naive, but mm -hmm. it's, but it is, it's right, you know, like it's like yeah. right to fight you uh, to fight for like the people to have their own voice politically and mm -hmm. economically and to yeah. be able to live, you know? So like, I love that. Um, and then addition, in addition to being like a proud, one of like the most prominent voices of the kind of pragmatic socialism in the West, he was also kind of the most badass um, internationalist in mm. the like late 20th century West. So yeah. Sweden um, 
during the time of Olaf Palm was famously like true neutral in the Cold War. Um, mm. And so uh, he did like Sweden did not choose a side in the Vietnam War. In fact, right. they actually held an international war crimes tribunal in mm. Stockholm that charged the U.S. with genocide in the Vietnam War. Um, that our boy Jean-Paul Sartre gave the closing address as like the prosecuting attorney. It was like, I mean, it was like a show trial. Yeah, um, right. Because, I don't know, you're not going to, what are you going to... Yeah, arrest the U.S. Arrest LBJ. Sweden's Sweden's going to arrest the country. Um, But in addition to like his opinions in the Cold War, where he was extremely critical of both the U.S. and the Soviet Union... Um, Mm -hmm. He was like the most prominent Western politician uh, in terms of anti-apartheid opinions. Just like Mm -hmm. not only was he like outspoken in his support of Mm -hmm. um, Mandela's party, but they were Mm -hmm. funding, they were sending um, like secretly sending funds in support of the ANC, uh, Mandela's Mm -hmm. political party, um, through Switzerland, like Sweden was funding the like revolutionary South African parties against the apartheid regime, uh, which I, like is so cool and is so. I mean, I I do feel like this was the assassination of Olaf Palm is kind of like a line in the sand moment of mm-hmm. like the end of an ideal of the West. Like yeah. you know, everyone kind of bucked up, especially in in the nineties. I, the Adam Curtis documentary is a great example of that. I'm on right. episode four now, I think. And like the the era of like big ideas is completely over. Uh, and mm-hmm. Bill Clinton saying the era of big government is over is kind of like that ushering in right. of a new world where you can't do anything and nothing can change. And guys like Olaf Palm are so in an old world sense of like what one person can do. Right. Um just an absolute badass. Like this guy, he's in our he's in our uh, Hegelian friendship simulators guys Hall of Fame. He's entering yeah, with, with Thomas and Cara. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Timothy Dexter's trying. He's knocking at that door. Yeah, Timothy <laughs> Dexter is um, not quite there, but but um, yeah. It, also, in addition to South Africa, Palm was outspoken in his support of independence movements in Namibia. Western mm-hmm. Sahara, which is kind of a throwback one. Nobody's talking no. about Western Sahara anymore. No. And Palestine, which was also a Yo. big one in the 70s and 80s. Like, who was talking about uh, the okay. West? You know, it's... This guy is canon. You know what I mean? He is. Absolutely. The way the way that we've recently dis- dis- decided to discuss the human canon. Yeah. I mean, when you look at it, so I'm like looking through his early life yeah. thing... And when you look at the trajectory of his early life, it's got all the trappings of someone who ends up getting it. Yeah, absolutely. He was born into the upper class, but then his mother was descended, arrived in Sweden from Russia as a refugee in 1915. Mm -hmm. So already through birth, he, he is influenced subconsciously or consciously by the upper class and the lower class yep he travels in the third world as well this is a great sentence 
This is a great sentence for Americans to have to reckon with. Mm-hmm. His travels in the third world, as well as the United States, where he saw deep economic inequality and racial segregation, helped to develop these views, which yep. are aforementioned social democratic attitudes. Yeah, it's actually, the same it as gonna... Che, you know, yeah, motorcycle it's, diaries. It's, it's very it's reminiscent Buddha's of motorcycle story. diaries. It's the same story as Buddha. It's the same story as um, Lenin. Yeah. Crossing, truly crossing class lines. Uh, yeah, there, there's a great um, uh, Jacobin article about him. Its title is Olaf Palm Was an Internationalist Hero. And yeah. it mentions directly that he says his um, experiences in the... So he, had, he went to college in... Um, the U.S. He went to Kenyon mm-hmm. College. Yeah, uh, which is like incredible. Which, which what, is awesome. What an and and he kind of was quote unquote radicalized with mm-hmm. two different impressions. So the first was when he was at Kenyon College, he would spend his weekends hanging out with people that worked in the turbine factory, like labor mm-hmm. unionists, and and so mm-hmm. it was like met working people. And then he claims that his experience traveling through the Jim Crow South um, was in like an enormous part in radical, like what, I don't know, I guess we would call radicalizing. His views aren't radical though. I think that's no, the that's thing the that thing. is like very important to understand is that he is a product of his culture and mm-hmm. of his time. And Sweden was allowed to have 40 years of uninterrupted rule by people who thought like him and are the like paragon of what mm-hmm. people perceive is like the right way for a culture to exist, you know? Like mm-hmm. and I and fuck all that bullshit that says like, oh, we can't do what the Nordic model is because oh they're homogenous cultures. It's not what it is. It's like, no, it's just people who have embraced a culture where they care about one another. Yep. If you just if we just changed our perception, if we just mm-hmm. changed the way that we saw the world and rather than seeing the world as endless competition and zero sum, mm-hmm. we saw it as a collective action where like working together leads to more effective growth than working against each mm-hmm. other. Like that's all they did. That's he just said I think that I am a socialist because I see inequality and I want to fix it. Right. So all he it's, did. It's, it's an agreement. It's like a mental cultural agreement by people that, that is like a, a, a plane of existence, a plane of mentality higher than this tribalist red versus blue situation we have going on yeah i mean think about it transcends that so easy simply so simply i think that this is the thing that is the most prominent thing i've been thinking about lately thank thanks in no small part to like a lot of the like between reading this book by ursula Le Guin, which is about Mm -hmm. a utopian anarchist planet Mm -hmm. And watching the, yeah, it's so cool. The Dispossessed by Ursula Le Guin is incredible. Um, and watching the Adam Curtis stuff is that we do not need to be living in the paradigm that we are living in. This is my, this is, this was my uh, poop building, poop building 
idea where I've mentioned, I maybe mentioned it in the postmodern architecture uh, episode where it was like, what people need to understand is that if we agreed to it, all of our buildings that we've, we make from now on could just look like pieces of poop. We can, we can say, (laughs) we want to make all our buildings look like poop. So we're gonna. And the usual response, I think, would be like, no, you can't just, like, make a bunch of buildings. No, but the thing you have to understand is that we can if we want. Right. Right. The the shift in your brain has to be if we agree to something as simple as that, we can. We are agreeing right. not to or that our decision just hasn't changed from disagreement about making our buildings look like poop. Like, we just don't want to. But it's not that we can't. And that's what we are getting stuck in. That's what we are getting stuck in constantly. Um, I mean, and and then here, to go full circle, Olaf Palm, uh, an HFS, a Hall of Famer, who did mm -hmm. just absolutely insanely good things, both for his country and the world. His country is a beacon of light for like how people should treat each other, was shot down on the street in the back of the head mm-hmm. and the killer ran off and was never found. And, and I mean, I, I have a section, if we want, we can talk about like who, like the theories because the case was technically mm. closed. Um, mm. the ta- the case was technically closed in, uh, last year, actually. Um, originally this guy, Christer Peterson, um, oh, who there are a was, lot of theories. Yeah. So, Christopher Peterson uh, was charged and convicted of the murder in 1988. He was a Mm. drunk and a drug addict um, who had killed someone in a bar fight, like, Mm. earlier in his life. Um, And he had been identified as a killer by uh, Lisbeth Palm. Mm -hmm. Um, But he was acquitted uh, a year after he was sentenced. Um, Mm. And then he, he died in 2004. And then uh, last year, in June, this guy, Stig Enstrom, who mm-hmm. was during the, the um, reporting known as the Scandia Man, was listed as the most likely uh, suspect. And Stig, Stig had killed himself in 2000, so 20 years ago. Uh, and so they, they declared that the investigation closed because they said... He was the prime suspect, but even he, the evidence was too too weak for a trial. Um, so then, there's because there's just like so little information. It reminds me actually mm-hmm. a lot of the Kennedy assassination. There's just mm-hmm. this like massive like outpouring of theories about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, th- and what. I did some like some reading deeper and deeper into it. And what I think a a lot of people think is that South Africa is responsible for it. Um, Because, because he was just absolutely like, uh, like visceral about his anti-apartheid stance. And then a week before he was murdered on 21st of February, um, Palm made the keynote address to the Swedish people's parliament against apartheid. 
um, attended by hundreds of anti-apartheid sympathizers, as well as leaders and officials from the ANC and the anti-apartheid movement. Um, in the address, Palm said, apartheid cannot be reformed. It has to be abolished. <sighs> and so and then 10 years later, toward the end of September 1996, uh, a former South African police officer gave evidence to the Supreme Court in Pretoria, alleging that Palm had been shot and killed because he strongly opposed apartheid. Um, and uh, he alleged a spy did it. Um, and then a, like a couple other people came out. But listen, this is not like there are other... So also Palm was super, a huge supporter of Salvador Allende and the Democratic yeah. Socialists in Chile. And so then there's another theory that... Um, that Chilean fascist Roberto Tiemé killed Olaf Palm. Tiemé was the head of the most militant wing of Patria y Libertad and financed by the U.S. CIA. According to Leopold, uh, who is an author, Palm was killed because he had gratuitously given asylum to a great number of leftist Chileans following the coup. Mm. That You know, the, the, just the fact that there are so many theories because there are so many people who would want to kill him for being for speaking out yeah for human rights i mean and and the crazy thing is that it's it kind of spans multiple political theories i mean he yeah. there's also a theory in 2011 the german magazine focus cited official german interrogation records in connection with another investigation 2000 and 2008 as showing that the assassination had been carried out by an operative of the yugoslavian security service so communists Damn. and then uh, there is uh, some the the Swedish police had kind of um, so this is in 1971 Olaf Palm said that he blamed the fear of the masses on anarchists and people with long hair and people with beards. <laughs> Following mm -hmm. up on this suggestion, Hans Holmer, the Swe the Stockholm police commissioner, worked with an intelligence lead passed to him and arrested a number of Kurds living in Sweden. The uh. PKK was allegedly responsible for the murder. The lead proved inconclusive, however, and ultimately led to Holmer's removal from the Palm murder investigation. So mm. for a while, the Swedish police thought the Kurds, like the communist Kurds, which, by the way, absolutely was not the Kurds. Yeah, uh, the, hilarious. The Kurds have done nothing wrong ever in my mind, so... <laughs> um, then there's, uh, you know, like uh, another plot involving the CIA. Um, also, this is an interesting one. Uh, in the German weekly Die Zeit from March 1995, Klaus-Dieter Knopp presented his view of the assassination as a result of a conspiracy among Swedish right-wing police officers. According ah. to this report, the murder was identified by two witnesses who happened to be at the scene and who knew the murderer from previous encounter encounters. And then if you go into the talk page, it is just wild. Um, oh, God. They think it might be a suicide. Um, hmm. He, they think, let's see else. Um, uh something involving Iran-Contra. Um, oh 
are the police, the army, and the Swedish secret police not mentioned? Uh, there's this is it's so it's is, it's a true uh, mystery. I mean, it's and I think that it's actually pretty suspicious that they closed the case on like just this random guy who committed suicide twenty years ago. Makes this this is one of those like this is one of those like eternal battle between good and evil. Yeah stories this is one one of the chapters in the eternal story of good and evil it's hard yeah it's it's hard not to think look i mean i know sweden is like not the most um monumentally important country in the world Mm -hmm. but something reading about this guy like he felt so important and it's hard Mm -hmm. not to think about like what the world could and would be like if he was a prominent figure in it th- past 1986, yeah. you know? Especially thinking about what happened in the 80s and 90s and like right. this like Western move away from what we owe to each other, what we owe to our society as a whole, and towards like what we owe to ourselves you know he would have been an interesting voice yeah i mean think about what what olaf palm would have had to say about bill clinton you know yeah oh yeah so yeah that's the story of olaf palm r.i.p hall of famer yeah welcome to the hall of fame king you are in the canon absolutely in the canon cemented in the canon for at least 30 other people Hell yeah. Um, all right, Verge. Well, we've been talking a while. This was a fun yeah. one. That was great. A classic app. Yeah, a classic. Some history, some funny, some talk pages, a little bit of Wikipedia yeah. knowledge. Um, if you if you are listening and you enjoyed this app, uh, please, please uh, go over to Apple Podcasts and rate and review this podcast. We yeah. certainly appreciate any of the reviews. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then, uh, yeah, if you want to get in touch with us, we're on Twitter and Instagram, uh, just the name of the show. Um, also, you can email us at Hegelian Friendship Simulator at gmail.com. Uh, and other than that, you know, just keep it sleazy, guys. Yeah. And gals. Keep it sleazy. Thank you for listening. We love you so much. Adios. Adios.